The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome. You've entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simran Singh. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Learn to empower yourself, broaden your mind, open your heart, and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simran Singh. Welcome. I'm really excited about another great show that we're going to have for you today. And this is a topic that really many, many people are struggling with. And I want to get right into the crux of it because I think it's a topic that is going to really enlighten and enliven you. We are talking about rethinking depression today. One in 10 or 11% of the people in the United States are taking antidepressants. 20 million Americans are diagnosed with depression each year. 120 million people worldwide are reputed to be suffering from depression. And this is something that is turning into a giant business industry as well. The antidepressants are our most prescribed drug in the United States of America. And we really need to find out, is depression truly a disease that we're fighting and is increasing, or is it possible that we need to rethink depression? And that is the title of the book, Rethinking Depression, How to Shed Mental Health Labels and Create Personal Meaning. The author is Eric Maisel, who is also the author of uh, mastering Creative Anxiety. He's the author of 40 books and is widely regarded as America's foremost creativity coach. He trains creativity coaches nationally and internationally and provides core trainings for the Creativity Coaching Association. Again, we're talking about rethinking depression, how to shed mental health labels and create personal meaning. I'd like to welcome Eric Mazel to 1111 Talk Radio. Hi, Simran. How are you? I'm great, Eric. It's wonderful to have you here. And it was really uh, kind of refreshing to read this book because so many uh, books in the past that I've read, they talk about depression. They talk about it being, uh, you know, a cry for creativity and different types of things. And what I really liked about your book in the beginning was you really sit down and divide it up into certain sections. And the first section is to discover, you know, is this really something that is a mental disorder and what do the treatments really do and does it really exist? And I think that's a great place to start so that we know where to go from from there. Yeah, I think we don't talk about it enough. Um, My argument in the book, my thesis, is that there isn't actually anything called a mental disorder of depression. It's just a label. And that for there to actually be a mental disorder of depression, we would need a definition of mental disorder that makes sense. And I don't think we have one. If if I were to share the American Psychiatric Association's definition of mental disorder with your listeners, they would just scratch their head and say, what's that about? And also, we don't have explanations. You know that depression, so to speak, depression is diagnosed on the basis of symptom pictures and not explanations. No one really knows what's going on underneath, so to act as if something is known doesn't seem to me to be truthful. And third, we need some way to distinguish between predictable human reactions to life, like sadness or unhappiness or grief, versus something pseudo-medical, and we don't have those ways either. So I try to make a clear argument in the book that there may well not be anything like a mental disorder of depression. Well, and, and you, you use some, some statements in here like uh, that, that we, the next step is that they have to name the disease, that you know, interest deficit disorder or motivation deficit disorder. Is that part of the problem is that when we see something happening, we have to call it something, and then we get so caught up in that labeling that we, we don't look at the root cause or what, what the, the heart and soul is really crying out for instead. Yeah, I think there's a very simple, you could call it a transaction or a trick, whichever way you like to think about it, a very simple transaction goes on where unwanted things become abnormal things. 
lots of things are unwanted in life, but that's not the same as believing that they're really abnormal things. And I think that's what the mental health profession does. It turns unwanted things into abnormal things. And you may know that the manual that therapists use to diagnose the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is undergoing a revision, and the new version will come out in 2013, version 5. And in it, there are going to be scores and scores of new mental disorders just made up by folks sitting around in a room saying, let's make this a mental disorder and let's make that a mental disorder. For instance, grief used to be a depression exemption. If you were grieving, you didn't get stuck. You did not get stuck with the label of depression. Now they want to change that and make grief a mental disorder if you remain grieving for too long. Too long meaning just a very short amount of time. And it should strike you and your listeners as crazy that you're supposed to get over the loss of a wife or a husband or a child just like that by snapping your fingers. And if you don't, that's a mental disorder. So it's a really, it's a buyer beware situation. Now, when you're saying that we are looking at what is unwanted um, and we're calling those things out, unwanted would mean things like uh, unhappiness or pessimism or just a lack of interest or boredom or energy. Exactly. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Like one, one famous actor said that, you know, when he was in school, he was so bored that he would drink ink. Well, we don't want our kids to drink ink, but that's not a mental disorder. That's boredom. And we need our schools to change. We don't need to be medicating that child so that he or she can sit there more passively or more actively, whichever way you want to say it. And in fact, I think that the new DSM, if I remember correctly, the DSM-5 that's coming is going to turn apathy, turn boredom into a mental disorder. Mm-hmm. And so there'll be a drug for that. And, uh, you know, you can medicate your kids every which way and yourself every which way. And let me just say that it's not medication. These aren't medications treating illnesses. An antidepressant is not a medication treating an illness. It's a chemical with strong effects, and there's a difference there. And these effects can be very powerful and even very positive. So it may be the case that somebody who's suicidal, somebody who's emotionally in a deep hole, may want these chemicals because they do produce powerful effects, some of which are positive. So I'm certainly not saying do not take antidepressants. What I'm saying is look at them not as medication, but as chemicals with effects. And, of course, you may want those effects. Well, and when we're thinking about it in that way, if we're looking at the symptoms that are surrounding our life, and, and they are some of these so-called unwanted yep. types of things, what, what's the other step? So there's one step where some people would go towards you know, the medication and, and follow that diagnosis of depression and follow that traditional route of the past. What, what are the other things that a person could do with the symptoms? Is it that we need to go more into the feeling? Do we need to go more into the thought of it? Do we need to ask questions? What's the step sure. to take well, care of, course, of the symptoms? It depends which kind of symptom we're talking about, but let's sort of start at the beginning. The mental health industry provides you with two things chemicals called antidepressants, and talk called psychotherapy. And so you may want both of those. It turns out that talk helps. All of the outcome studies in therapy seem to indicate that what's most important in your therapist is that she has some warmth and that she's a human being. It's not her theoretical orientation, not what she knows, not anything about diagnosing and treating. It's just her warmth. So one of the things that helps human beings when they're they're feeling blue is to talk with someone who seems to be a warm human being. So psychotherapy has its place. The chemicals we just talked about have their place because they can have some positive effects. But then you have to look life in the eye because if what's making you sad is that your job is boring or that your mate is cheating on you or something, or that you've evaluated life as a cheat, which millions of people have done, they've decided that life really isn't all it's cracked up to be. And that's, in fact, why they're blue. They don't quite understand or know that they arrived at this negative evaluation, this piece of pessimism, but they have. So, obviously, it depends what's going on. If what's causing you to be blue is this negative evaluation, then you, so to speak, have to change your mind. The work is cognitive. You have to decide that life matters, that this life is important to you, that you and your efforts matter. If what's bothering you are things like a boring job or a cheating spouse, well, then there are real-life changes to be made. And 
And because those changes are so large and so hard, human beings really like to turn over that responsibility to doctors and take a pill instead of changing their job. So that's the tip of that iceberg. Well, and it seems like what you're talking about is that we have to get to the point that we at least are aware or are choosing to recognize that there is a role of unhappiness that's going on in our life and that we have to take charge of that in some way, shape, or form, not just pass it over. Absolutely, because I don't think there's any person around, even even a person most convinced that antidepressants work, who think that antidepressants can make their job interesting or can make their mate uh, the right mate for them. There must be other things we have to do in life beyond taking a pill if we're going to experience life in a positive way. So we're obliged to do a lot of things to deal with our own sadness. Now, you are the um, the expert when it comes to creativity. You've written more than 40 books, and you are a creativity coach, the, the America's foremost creativity coach. What is that relationship between, quote-unquote, depression and creativity? Well, there are lots of connections there. One of the most important ones is that a creative person tends to be someone who understands that they have to make meaning in life, that they're not seekers, but that they have to stay put and write their novel or do their painting. They've, they've, un- they've understood that meaning is not something handed to them, but something they must create. And that's its own challenge, because it's hard to do that. It's hard to make meaning. It's necessary, but it's hard. So that's one of the challenges facing a creative person and one of the things that makes them sad. Then there are all kinds of basic survival issues. It's not easy to be a creative person in our culture. There are some headliners and celebrities, but the average typical creative person can't survive by um, selling his or her art, and so then they need a day job or some other way of making money, and that makes them sad. It makes them sad to spend 60 hours a week on some job they have to do just to pay the bills when they would like to be doing their creating, etc., etc. I think the main point, though, is to, to use old-fashioned language. Their depression is existential depression. Namely, it's a depression we experience when we're not sure if we or our efforts matter. I think an awful lot of creative people just are not sure that turning out another image, turning out another story, turning turning out another X, Y, or Z really matters in the world. And so they're sad at that existential level of wondering if what they're doing really matters. And we're going to go more into that after this commercial break. I am with Eric Maisel, and he has real help for human sadness. And this is beyond the labels and the pills. In recent decades, much of the unhappiness inherent in the human condition has been monetized into the disease of depression and related disorders. In this provocative and path-breaking distillation of a career spent working with individuals seeking help with mood and motivation, Eric Maisel persuasively critiques the sickness model and prescribes a potent new approach that updates the best ideas of modern psychology. The title of the book is Rethinking Depression, How to Shed Mental Health Labels and Create Personal Meaning. You can connect with Eric Maisel at ericmaisel.com. That's E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. We'll be right back with Eric Maisel. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. Be the change. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today, www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. 
This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you'd like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to info at believesc.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simran Singh. There are numerous reasons why people believe that depression exists. There's a culture-wide, almost worldwide acceptance that depression is a mental disorder. Isn't this acceptance proof of its existence? We happen to see depression everywhere. It's an epidemic, and there are so many people that seem to be suffering from it. In addition, mental health professionals say that such a disorder does exist, so it would have to, wouldn't you think? Since drugs exist for the treatment of depression, doesn't it make sense to presume that it's a medical condition? There are numerous reasons that one would think that depression does exist, but maybe we need to rethink that whole idea. Eric Maisel is the author of Mastering Creative Anxiety and now the new book, Rethinking Depression, How to Shed Mental Health Labels and Create Personal Meaning. He is putting up an argument that perhaps there's a different way to look at this, that perhaps uh, the idea of depression really stems from other things, a connection to unhappiness or a need to create more meaning in life. You can find out more about Eric Maisel at ericmaisel.com. And you were talking, Eric, uh, just recently about uh, the existential program and people needing to take more control of their lives. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that, what existential program means? Sure. Existentialism was, of course, a philosophy and a psychology from the 40s, 50s, and 60s primarily, although it has roots all the way back thousands of years. And its central thesis is that we have to take responsibility for our life. It's really straightforward, but it's, it's also provocative and difficult. And the existentialists themselves never really, maybe because it didn't interest them or maybe because they didn't know exactly how to do it, never really provided a complete program based on existential principles. And that's what I try to do in this book. I try to lay out what an existential program would look like, how you have to accept the idea of making meaning rather than looking for it, how you engage in what I call value-based meaning-making, that is, Meaning can come from all kinds of places. You could go out in the evening, look at the night sky, and have the experience, the psychological experience of meaning. But that's not the same as doing work based on your principles and values. So there's, so to speak, any old meaning, and then there's value-based meaning. And the more value-based meaning we engage in, the more we make ourselves proud. And I think it's an important point that we want to stop thinking about happiness versus unhappiness, we want to think a little bit less about mood and a lot more about meaning and allow meaning to trump mood, so to speak. That is, to more think about what our next meaning investment might be than what our mood is. And it's one of those funny things about mood. We're always checking in on our mood when we feel our worst. We're never checking in at a party or at a ball game or when we're happy, when we're with our kids playing. We don't check in at that moment and say to ourselves, what mood am I in? Because we're in a perfectly fine mood at that moment. It's only when we stop doing those meaningful activities and go into this wall that we check in with ourselves and, and, so to speak, notice that we're unhappy. So that's one of the things that I've tried to point out, the idea that we're checking in on our moods at exactly the wrong times. What I want to um, talk to you about in regard to that is that also means that we do not allow what's really going on externally to be the thing that we're focusing on. That means that we really have to check in and and be open to the truth of where we are, and it may not exactly match what other people feel about it. What Our choices of what makes meaning may not match what other people's choices of what makes meaning are. Absolutely, and that's why I... I try to argue that each person has to actually be a leader rather than a follower. It just makes simple logical sense that if you're attempting to make your own meaning, if you're attempting to live by your own principles and values, that may put you at loggerheads with your society or your parents or your job or anybody. Because if you are really decisively standing behind your own values and principles, well, 
that may not be what somebody else is believing in. So it does mean that you become a kind of activist, and that scares a lot of people. It scares a person to be a whistleblower or an activist or a leader. And so there's a lot of anxiety management skills needed to actually be a meaning maker. We have to be able to figure out how to reduce our experience of anxiety if we're going to make personal meaning. So that's one of the keys in the book is the idea that there's that kind of relationship between anxiety and, so to speak, depression, and that is the things that you may be required to do from yourself in order to change your experience, improve your situation, and feel less sad may also make you anxious, and you need to embrace that anxiety, manage it, and get on with your life. Well, and so often that meaning that we, or, or lack of meaning that we have in our life, it's because we have followed that outside world and its views or its portrayals or its marketing as to what is supposed to make us happy. Right, and it's dogma. And, That's right. And it's just dogma, exactly like you say. We mm-hmm. have to decide, number one, what matters to us, but then that also means that we have to decide that we matter enough to make those choices. That's exactly right, and there's another misunderstanding about meaning that's really important, and that's the idea that life has to feel meaningful at all times. Hard to know where that idea came from, must be thousands of years old now, but in fact, that's not the case. We don't need life to feel meaningful at all times. We just need it to feel meaningful enough of the time. And so I present the idea of negotiating each day, starting out the day with a little morning meaning check-in, just half a minute, where you kind of make decisions about where you're going to make meaning investments during that day. Maybe it's the hour you spend writing your novel or the the time you spend having a hard conversation with your child about something or whatever it is, you point out for yourself, you try to pinpoint where you're going to make meaning investments on that day. And the other parts of the day, you can live in meaning neutral. You can just run through your errands and checklists and responsibilities without pestering yourself about whether those times are feeling meaningful. It's a big difference to understand that only a portion of your day need feel meaningful and the rest of it you can take a vacation from meaning versus thinking that life is supposed to feel meaningful at all times. Because if you think the latter and you check in with yourself and you notice that life isn't feeling meaningful at that moment, you get scared and sad. You get worried about what's going on. But if you can change your mind about that and recognize that only X amount of time of a day needs to feel meaningful and about the rest of the time you can relax, that will improve your mood. Well, what I liked also about the book was the concept that if we decide at the beginning of the day that these are the number of experiences that I choose to have some meaning in my life, those tend to be the things that do fill us up enough so that we can handle those meaning vacations or those mundane things that sometimes we have to do that are maybe not as meaningful to us but meaningful to others. Exactly, and um, I think it's a kind of existential inoculation to make some meaning first thing each morning. I work with creativity coaching clients and meaning coaching clients, and I try to have them institute a morning practice of some sort. It doesn't have to be writing your novel. It can be whatever it is that seems meaningful to you to spend some time before your regular day begins with some sort of practice so that you have the experience of having made some meaning on that day already. And a lot of the rest of the day can feel half meaningless and you won't be saddened by that because you've built up some meaning capital or meaning resources on that day already. And it's a huge difference in the lives of my creative and performing artist clients to try to get to their creating in the evening when they have no brain cells left to have been getting sadder all day long as they've been either avoiding or not being able to get to their creating. So by the end of the day, they're both sad and tired. Another day goes by. They don't actually get to their creating, and this can go on for months or years. They can lose years of their lives by imagining that they can get to their creative work after their day. It is ever so much better to try to get to your creative work first thing each morning than to try to wait until evening to get to it. In creative pursuits, and and so you, you were speaking a little bit from that side, but we also live in a society where many people have ignored their creative side or have gotten so much into their head that they are 
um, they're not as in that feeling place that many times created mm-hmm. actually are. So is there a journey to meaning through the mind that then eventually leads to a journey to meaning through the heart that people will end up traveling so that this this is something that constantly changes, that the different meanings, uh, so to speak, will constantly change. So something that may have meaning today sure. may not have meaning tomorrow. Well, as to that, absolutely. But I think you pose a really interesting thing interesting question, and that is, do we start, if we're looking for something to be, let's say, productively obsessed about, which is a phrase I like, and I did a whole book on that called Brainstorm, the idea of productive obsessions as opposed to only unproductive obsessions. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for something to be productively obsessed about, it's an interesting question whether that's a brain question, an idea question, or a heart question, just as you say. And Pavarotti had an interesting quote. He said, People say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion, and there's a big difference. And I think there is a big heart component to finding meaningful work or trying to figure out what our meaningful work is. It has to, it has to feel like meaningful work in the body or in the heart. So that is an important part of this puzzle. And that's why often when a client comes to me and wants to do creative work but has no idea what she actually wants to do, I may well start her out trying to generate a list of passions or some other kind of word that's in the category of feeling because it's probably in that category that she's going to find the thing that she really wants to do. I I think that's very, very true. And and it's so easy to get caught up in our minds when we have been living in a structured society and sometimes the heart does get shut down that we have to open up to those thoughts and feelings and allow ourselves to discover and continue to discover why we're here and what we're all about. My guest today is Eric Maisel, and he is the author of over 40 books. He is widely regarded as America's foremost creativity coach, in addition to being a columnist for Professional Artist Magazine and a featured blogger for Psychology Today and Huffington Post. He reaches thousands through his website, workshops, and online courses. He is the founder of Nomadic Psychology and the New Psychology of Meaning. And you can connect with him at ericmazel.com. We'll be right back to talk a little bit more about rethinking depression. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you'd like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to info at believesc.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simran Singh. Welcome back. My guest today is Eric Maisel, and we are talking about rethinking depression. The book uh, it also talks more about how to shed mental health labels and create personal meaning in your life. Eric Maisel is the author of Mastering Creative Anxiety, along with many, many other books. And we just talked about creating an existential program and 
not all happiness is going to vanish if you follow the program, but you're a human being after all and not immune to pain, but a lot of your unhappiness can. So if you're willing to look your life in the eye, investigate meaning, decide what matters to you, and decide how you matter, and there are many more things listed in the book, uh, you can also start to create more of a life that has the happiness and has the meaning and you don't have to term what's going on in your life as depression any longer, but actually create what gives more life and purpose. You talk about life purpose vision, Eric. Uh, how do people go about creating that life purpose vision, which will also help lead to more meaning? It's a really interesting and complicated answer. The question is simple. <laughs> the answer is complicated because if you try to generate a list of your values and principles, and I generate such a list in the book just to, just to sort of put that in people's faces, what it looks like to have a huge list of values. When you generate a list of values and principles, then you don't know what to do with it. It's, just, it's this huge list of things you want to stand behind, but what do you do with it? So I have people try to spend a little time looking at their own values and their own principles and trying to distill from that long list, a very simple statement that can stand for the way they want to represent themselves in life, the, way, the, the, the idea that they want to stand behind for their whole life. And then there's a movement. Once you've created a sentence like that, often it takes people many, many tries before they find a life purpose statement that makes sense to them, that feels resonant to them. But then there's a movement translating those few words into a feeling in your body, into what I call a life purpose vision, where it's no longer words, but it's a way of being. But as complicated as that all sounds, it's actually also very simple. It's the idea of trying to find a headline for your life. And let me give you a little anecdote example. Um, I talked about some of the things we're talking about in an earlier book, The Van Gogh Blues, and an elementary school teacher emailed me, and she said, you know, with my third-grade students, I've decided just to talk to them about meaning, even though they're third-grade students. And so we talk about meaning, and one of the things I did was take the whole class out to the river, and we, the kids picked out stones from the riverbed, stones large enough to write on, and then we came back, and I gave them art supplies. And, and I had them choose a word that they wanted to stand for the way they wanted to be for the coming school year. Essentially, it was their life purpose statement in one word, because it was only one word that could fit on the stone. And she said it was really an incredible experience that that year the kids could self-regulate ever so much better. They were more interested in working and also easier to be with. They just could stay put better because they could turn to their stone and remind themselves of how they wanted to represent themselves for that school year. So even though on one level this is a very complicated matter of trying to condense your principles and values into some single vision or statement, on the other hand, it's eminently doable. And I think it's really a great exercise for folks to see if they can arrive at their life purpose statement or vision, because that may be an organizing principle that allows them to deal with life much more powerfully. And as an organizing principle, we're talking about it being, number one, almost a subconscious map that we follow, exactly. but then also, also a conscious feeling and mental map that we follow uh, because it keeps us on course towards something. That's right. And just to flesh it out a little bit, because I didn't really provide any um, concrete examples of what it might sound like, but it might sound like something as simple as doing the next right thing. That could be a very beautiful life purpose statement for a person. I'm spending my life doing the next right thing. So, and I think you can see how a phrase like that, and obviously it doesn't have to be that one, but how a phrase like that could capture for a person how they want to spend their life and how it might prevent them from surfing the net a little too much or checking email a thousand times or whatever it is that are our distraction addictions or whatever's going on for us that we really don't want to do that much of, well, by reminding ourselves that we're trying to spend our life doing the next right thing, that may help us skip things like surfing the net too much. That's actually very valuable because if you talk to the average person about life purpose, they think it has to be this grand picture, it has to be an end goal, it has to be some sort of measured 
Nirvana. Success or <laughs> yes, exactly. Or it has to be some huge world vision that that takes place. So, life purpose vision. You're, it sounds as if you're talking more about it being uh, a feeling or a um, a concept to embody in your life. That's right. And I think I think the bottom line of it is that we really do want to make ourselves proud. I think an awful lot of people are living their lives feeling like they're not actually making themselves proud by their efforts. And so I think that what a life purpose vision actually probably embodies is that understanding that we want to make ourselves proud. And I think that doing the next right thing is the kind of phrase that stands for the idea that I really want to do that. I, I want to live an ethical, principled, powerful, strong life. And one way to say that is that I'm going to do the next right thing over and over again. Now, the book is titled Rethinking Depression, but as I'm hearing you talk, it sounds like the, the course of this would evolve into redefining and rethinking the meaning of many words or concepts in our lives so that we can continue to get to the deeper meaning for ourselves. I think that's true. I think I, I try to provide a vocabulary of meaning. We have a very poor to non-existent vocabulary of meaning right now. We don't have good ways of talking about meaning primarily to ourselves. It's one thing about not being able to talk about it to other people, but we don't even have a way to talk about it to ourselves. And since we don't know how to say things like this is a meaning crisis as opposed to depression, or that I want to seize this meaning opportunity, or I want to make this meaning investment, when we don't have that language, then we don't really know how to operate in the territory of meaning. So I, I do think that it's valuable for each person to increase their language around meaning, have more ways of saying what's important to them. Also, I think all of the words that the mental health industry uses have been, you know, kidnapped, held hostage by them, obsession being one of them. hundred years ago, obsession got defined as an unwanted, intrusive thought, so by definition, all obsessions are negative. But that's not how human beings experience life. Creative people have experienced obsessions as great things. They know that really biting into the writing of their novel is a great thing. So there's a, there are a lot of words used in the mental health industry that we kind of have to retrieve and redefine and think about anew. Well, it just goes to show that, that when we take things that are thrown at us in that way and we just believe it to be as it is, we make it the dogma that it is, uh, we are actually giving up our power. We're, we're giving over that control that we have of our own lives, and we're giving away the meaning that we could have. That's right. And In my experience, people are pretty incurious. They're not very curious about how language operates. When I was in training, pro, you know, therapy training programs, I would notice that I was the only one raising my hand when the professor would posit some idea that just didn't make sense to me. And there was nobody else kind of poking at what does this word mean, what does that word mean. So I think that it may not be that all mental health professionals are, are getting behind these mental disorders just for the money of it. It may be that they're not very curious in trying to examine what's actually going on. I think it's a big problem in our species that we have a lot of incuriosity. Talk a little bit about self-care, because I find that more and more people are uh, either at the place where they're really deciding, I have to start taking care of myself, mm -hmm. or we have them at the complete other spectrum where they're so busy involved in their work or taking care of others that they've completely ignored themselves. What is, where is that in relation to the entire meaning conversation, and how does it connect to the many different spheres of our life, just you know, money, relationships, all these different things? Well, there are lots of faces to self-care. The one that I would stress would be cognitive self-care, that is really being careful about what we say to ourselves. And I think most people don't believe that they can get a grip on their own mind. They think that their thoughts think them and that they don't really have any control about what they think, but they do if they would work at it. And it's very important because what we think makes us sad. I'll give a simple example. So let's say you say to yourself, I want to write a novel, and you're enthusiastic for about five seconds. And then your next thoughts are, oh, but there's so much competition, and I'm so old, and I really don't know what I want to say, et cetera, et cetera. Every one of those thoughts don't serve you, and every one of those thoughts start to make you sad. And so what happens over and over again is that a person 
wants to start a novel, and two minutes later they're, so to speak, depressed, and they don't know why. And the reason they're depressed is they had this powerful intention, and then they followed up that powerful intention with thoughts that didn't serve them. And we do that all the time. And it's not about the truth or falsity of these thoughts. It's about whether they serve you or not. In fact, there may be a lot of competition, and there may be a lot of writers, and all of that may be true, but it still doesn't serve you to be thinking that. So to say this simply, I think the most important piece of self-care, and it seems odd that this would be the most important, but I think it is, is to notice what we're saying to ourselves, which is an act of courage because we're tricky defensive creatures and we're not always wanting to know what we're saying to ourselves. Step one is to notice what we're saying to ourselves. Step two is to dispute those thoughts that don't serve us, and we have tons of them all day long. We're thinking thoughts that don't serve us all day long. So to dispute them, and then to substitute more affirmative language. And if a person would be willing to do that, so to speak, simple thing of noticing what they're thinking and disputing those thoughts that don't serve them and substituting more affirmative language, they would feel less sad because they wouldn't be thinking those thoughts that are bringing them down. Well, and it's those thoughts, those negative thoughts, those unaffirming words mm-hmm. that are really part of what is making us feel meaningless so that we can't create the meaning and we do settle for what's outside and we don't take the chance to go out and do something or take the responsibility because we're beating ourselves up the whole time. That's right. We see something We see something as a meaning opportunity. We kind of want to seize it. And then in the next second, we think something that prevents us from doing it. And this happens all the time, whether it's starting your home business or uh, being willing to date after a bad relationship or whatever it is. We, we un- there are probably, I think there are probably about 20 large categories of meaning opportunities that human beings have found provoke the experience of meaning, creating being one, relating being one, service being another, excelling being another. There may be 20 of those categories. So we have many, many meaning opportunities. And were we to seize them, if we looked at that as a menu and sort of picked from them the things that we think would be most meaningful to us, we could relatively easily create a life that feels meaningful. But what happens is we look at one of those meaning opportunities, let's say it's creating, and we see it, we see that it is a meaning opportunity, but the next thought in our mind is, but I'm not equal to that. I'm not going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so they prevent themselves from making meaning, and they make themselves sad all in that one split second. One of my favorite paragraphs in the book uh, was, Authenticity demands that value trump appetite and even survival. We all want principled action from ourselves. We all want to feel proud when we look in the mirror. Usually we think of this as leading a life of value or life based on values. Existential ethics makes a higher demand that you opt to honor values. It demands that you see through the idea of value to the more complex reality of earned authenticity. Loving values and having values are not enough. Contextualizing values is a much more difficult affair, and you list out an entire values list, Yes, and I think we have to decide if we're deserving of those values, and then are we willing to initiate those values in our life? And also that um, our righteous acting is situational. It really is. We can't settle on some value. For instance, you know, we might be for the war that our country is fighting in January, because we think it's a righteous war. And then in February, we learn something about the war, about how it got started and how maybe it isn't a righteous war. And so then in in whatever the next month is, March, we change our minds about standing behind this war. Well, everyone knows that, that these kinds of shifts in meaning are very difficult on the system. It's very hard to be for a war in January and against the war in March. Just look at Vietnam or how entrenched people got on one side or the other. So the idea that our values shift contextually is actually very hard on the system, and people have to understand that they have to go with that hardness if they want to live authentically. 
Dr. Eric Maisel does not discount the real sense of sadness, frustration, exhaustion, and lack of motivation that have been rolled into the diagnosis of depression. He takes on the manufacturing of mental disorders and the over-medication of our society. He returns the control of the quintessential human problem of unhappiness where it belongs, to the people who are suffering. This book, Rethinking Depression, How to Shed Mental Health Labels and Create Personal Meaning, does two key things. It disputes the prevailing view that depression is a disease, and it introduces a complete program for addressing human sadness. Dr. Maisel turns his focus to practical advice for dealing with sadness by leading a life based on existential ideas, with the understanding that unhappiness is an inevitable part of life. He offers practical tools for taking as much control as possible of our thoughts, attitudes, moods, behaviors, and orientation toward life. If you'd like to try to live that strange, shining ideal, the authentic life, this is the program for doing so. You can connect with Dr. Eric Maisel at ericmaisel.com. We'll be right back. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today, www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. This is the 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you'd like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to info at believesc.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simran Singh. Welcome back. Dr. Eric Maisel is a licensed psychotherapist and the author of Rethinking Depression and numerous other titles, including Mastering Creative Anxiety, Brainstorm, Coaching the Artist Within, and a Writer's San Francisco. He blogs for the Huffington Post and writes for the Professional Artist Magazine. You can connect with him at ericmaisel.com. When you live a life as a meaning maker, each day is a special sort of negotiation. You make decisions about where you will invest meaning, how you will handle activities that hold no particular meaning, when you will take your vacations for meaning, and so on. You make a daily bargain with yourself that if you hold on to your intentions, you'll find no reason to doubt the meaningfulness of that day. Eric, I really think this is an incredibly important conversation. It's going to turn the lives around of many, many people. Um, especially those that maybe have been diagnosed with depression or have been considering uh, a lot of the symptoms that lead to the diagnosis of depression. Talk a little bit about if someone has been diagnosed with that or if they're feeling in that way, number one, what they should do, and where does, where does the decision about getting off the de- depressant, antidepressants and different things like that lie in this conversation? You bet. <clears throat> if you're feeling use my language, sad, or in the customary language, depressed, you really do want to check in with mental health providers. You really do, because you may want their chemicals, which do have positive effects sometimes, although a lot of their effects is pretty clear is the placebo effect, but still, that's an effect, and so you may even want the placebo effect. So you do want to check in with mental health professionals to maybe get their pills and to maybe talk with them, which is called psychotherapy. So it is important that you not try to isolate yourself and just hang out with your sadness 
or be embarrassed about um, entering into the mental health professional world. You want to do that. Simultaneously, though, you want to be thinking about what you can do to change your life so that you will experience life less unhappily. If you're currently on antidepressants, and I think I may have mentioned this earlier, but I do want to repeat this. If you're currently on antidepressants, you don't want to get off them precipitously. You do want to get off them only with um, medical intervention because not only are there powerful chemicals, both with positive and negative effects, they are so powerful that getting off of them too quickly can be dangerous. So I do think that it's it's an eminently sensible goal to picture yourself as off chemicals at some point, but you don't want to do it too hastily. You want to be thinking about it. You want to be looking forward to it, but you only want to do it with medical help. Wonderful. And I want to bring up one other point, too. There's so many different phases of life that we go through that can change the degree of stress or change the mindset and our approach to life. And it can be anything from a marriage to the birth of a child to a divorce to the uh, end of a career to retirement. How does someone allow themselves to maneuver those different phases of life and continue to find the meaning in each of those areas the way they need to. Uh, For instance, if someone, let's say, is retiring and they've ended a career and now they're at a place of of the open canvas and not really knowing what to do or where to go, how do they then now reestablish their meaning? Well, I think you use the customary language, which of course is customary, and you said that they're seeking meaning in these new stages. And I would say that there's no meaning to seek that they have to stay put and make meaning. That isn't to say that they they may not cycle through many activities, meaning opportunities, or what have you. So it's the same task throughout life. It's the understanding that the only meaning that exists is the meaning we make. And so that's that's the key and the clue for um, everything we've been chatting about. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Maisel, for being on 1111 Talk Radio. I appreciate your book, which is Rethinking Depression, How to Shed Mental Health Labels and Create Personal Meaning. Definitely connect to him on his website, ericmaisel.com. That's E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. And tune in to us next week when we have Osprey Oriya Lake, and we're going to be talking about visionary shamanism, so another wonderful topic. Thank you again, Dr. Maisel. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on 1111 Talk Radio. Thanks for having me. Until next time, I'm Simran Singh. Be well. Thank you for stepping into the doorway of conscious choice with 1111 Talk Radio. Please join host Simran Singh again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for another enlightening edition here on the 7th Wave Network. Remember, shift happens. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset 
Discovering the Heart and Stepping into Conscious Living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. 